Greetings and welcome to Word Magazine. This is Jeff Riddle. I'm the pastor of Christ Reformed Baptist Church in Louisa, Virginia. And in this episode of Word Magazine, I want to look at a topic that I had titled Mormons, the Dead Sea Scrolls, Theological Presuppositions, and Modern Textual Criticism. Uh, the topic for this episode was prompted by an email that I received this past week from a friend in England, and he had attended the Trinitarian Bible Society meeting in June, in which I had done a lecture on the providential preservation of scripture. And in that lecture, I was contrasting what I consider to be a traditional Protestant view of preservation, as set out in Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 8, with new construals, new imaginings of what preservation means. And I made reference in that lecture uh, to uh, the fact that a Mormon scholar named Donald Perry had been added to the editorial team for the scholarly uh, printed edition of the Hebrew Old Testament. And I had um, picked up this information from uh, my reading of this little booklet by Richard Brash. Uh, it's the Christian's Pocket Guide to How God Preserved the Bible, published by Christian Focus in 2019. And when I read this back in 2019, I was struck by some of uh, the comments that Brash made about how uh, wonderful it was that there was now uh, a Mormon scholar who was one of the co-editors for the uh, modern critical text of the Hebrew Old Testament. So let me just pull up a couple things here to show you on screen if I can. Um, I actually addressed this, this issue back in January of 2020 in uh, Word Magazine 146, uh, which was titled Text and Academy, a Mormon editor for the Old Testament. And there's a picture there of uh, Brigham Young University, BYU is uh, uh, the foremost uh, Mormon university there in Utah. And uh, Perry there is a professor and he's depicted here studying an Old Testament manuscript and um, anyways, in that Word Magazine 146, I sort of addressed this topic. And um, anyway, I wanted to go back maybe and read again a little um, uh, section, a little section in here in which Brash discusses this. And then what I, I want to share with you a link that this friend in England sent as a follow-up. Uh, to my mention of uh, Perry working as an editor for the uh, Hebrew Bible, the scholarly edition of the Hebrew Bible. So anyways, let me, let me just read a little bit uh, here from Richard Brash's book. And Richard Brash is someone who's offering a reimagining of what the Protestant view of preservation should be. See, the, the old view was that again, of the Westminster Confession of Faith, chapter 1, paragraph 8, that God had kept his word pure in all ages. And so there's a little segment here where Brash, this is on page 48, on to page 49, where he discusses John Owen. 
And uh, he discusses the fact that John Owen uh, uh, vehemently defended the authenticity of the um, the uh, the Masoretic text, including the vocalization of that text, including not just the consonants, but also the vowel markers as being uh, having been preserved by God to to preserve the the proper vocalization of the Masoretic text. And uh, here in his discussion of that, Brash wrote the following. He said, Owen's twofold mistake, apart from the historical inaccuracy concerning the origin of the vowel points, was to assume that one, preservation and inspiration related to the physical and orthographical phenomena of a written text, and two, this is Owen's second error, error according to uh, Brash, only the true people of God could preserve the written word of God. So first of all, he said Owen was in error because he saw the issue of both inspiration and preservation as not merely having to do with the proper doctrinal content of scripture, but it having to do with, as he puts it, um, its orthography, its physical orthographical phenomena, that is, the very words in which it was written. And this is something I've addressed before. Um, the, the old Protestant Orthodox had a view of the double divine authority of the scriptures in the original languages in Hebrew and Greek. They said they were infallible, not just in the doctrinal content, but also in the formal content, meaning the very words. And Richard Brash is wanting to reimagine or reinterpret this and say, no, uh, inspiration and preservation does not extend to the words themselves. Um, again, this is very much against the, 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 the thinking, the writing of Owen. Uh, you can see, for example, uh, in his uh, little work in volume four, The Reason of Faith, how he defends, I would call, uh, I would call it a traditional interpretation of Matthew 5.18, that God has preserved the words down to the jot and tittle. And so he believes in the meticulous preservation of the very words, not just the content of scripture. The second thing that Owen, uh, that, that place where Brash says that Owen made an error was that Owen believed that only the true people of God could preserve the written word of God. And this is the, the part that's going to be apropos for the uh, content of this episode related to the Mormon professor who's now an editor uh, for the Biblia Hebraica Quinta. And so um, here is what Brash wrote on page 49 about this second objection of his to the classic Protestant Orthodox view of John Owen. He says, in respect of number two, that is the supposed error that only the true people of God could preserve the written word of God, Bryce says, there is no reason to assume that God cannot use unbelievers such as the Masoretes to preserve his written word. 
Indeed, he adds, one of the editors of the latest critical edition of the Old Testament, the Biblia Hebraica Quinta, is a Mormon professor from Brigham Young University. Can God use a non-Trinitarian Mormon to work on the textual criticism of a Hebrew text that will likely form the basis of future Bible translations across the world? History suggests that he can. So <laughs> this is quite a statement from Brash. Brash is saying the fact that there's a Mormon editor for the scholarly edition of the Old Testament is actually a good thing. He says, first of all, it's in continuity of the fact that, that the Masoretes, who weren't Christians, they preserved the Hebrew scriptures. But there, there would be an objection there. What did the Reformed Orthodox say to that? Well, one of their, their passages that they would cite would be uh, from Romans 3, chapter 2. Uh, let me just read uh, Romans 3, verses 1 and 2. What advantage then hath the Jew? Or what profit is there of circumcision? Much every way. Chiefly because that unto them were committed the oracles of God. And the Protestant Orthodox took that saying from the Apostle Paul, unto them, unto the Jews, was committed the oracles of God as a proof text to say that the Jews were the custodians of the uh, Old Testament text up until the time of the emergence of Christianity. And, uh, of course, it's just pointing to a reality that before the incarnation of Christ, um, and, and, and until the time of the apostles, the, the, the Old Testament, the Hebrew scriptures, uh, were kept by faithful Jews and Jewish scribes. And even after that time, until the development of the growth and the stabilization of Christianity, that the Jews were the proper custodians of the Old Testament scriptures. And uh, part and parcel with this is the idea that the proper text of the Christian Old Testament is the traditional Jewish text, the Masoretic text. So unlike uh, the Eastern Orthodox who want to use the Septuagint translation of the Old Testament, the Protestants have always said, no, the proper Old Testament is the Hebrew Old Testament. And the proper Hebrew Old Testament is the traditional one that has been preserved and kept by the Masoretic scribes. And this was certainly true in the time of the Reformation. All the Reformation translations of the Old Testament were based on the traditional Hebrew Masoretic text. It's only been in the 19th century that persons have begun to challenge the authenticity of the, the classical traditional Hebrew Masoretic text and they've tried to introduce readings from the Dead Sea Scrolls, from the Septuagint, from Syriac, um, uh, in some cases, uh, conjectures, and so forth. But the traditional view uh, was that the Masoretes. Now, he's saying that we can have a Mormon professor now who is editing the Hebrew Bible that is going to be used as the basis for translations in various vernacular languages among Protestants. And there's a justification for that because the Masoretic scribes kept the Old Testament. Well, <laughs> this is an apples and orange, oranges comparison. Uh, 
the Jews were the people of the Old Testament, and they were the people of the Old Covenant. And they were ones who were um, the, the custodians of the Old Testament. And they had a connection with Christianity, the New Covenant, uh, is in continuity with the Old Covenant and is the fulfillment of the Old Covenant. Uh, to, to say that, that there's a comparison now that we can have a Mormon editor um, is uh, just doesn't make sense. And I, I, it's interesting the way he described this fellow. He described him as a non-Trinitarian Mormon. Well, that's about as uh, a weak a description of him, of his confessional views as one could, could, could put it. It'd probably be more proper to say that as a Mormon, he's a polytheistic pagan. He believes in polytheism. He believes in many gods. So that's quite different than the Masoretic scribes who are monotheists and who uh, were, were part of the historical people of God who were the, the, the custodians of the scriptures um, in, in the times before the incarnation of Christ and extending beyond that as the Christian movement was growing to say that they were stewards and to say now it's okay to have a polytheistic pagan and, and, and even to say as Brash does that this is wonderful. See, this is showing that God can preserve his, his word even through people who are unbelievers. And again, where in the scriptures do we find examples of the scriptures being preserved by unbelievers? They're preserved by the people of God, the historical people of God. And so anyways, quite an interesting thing. Now, let's get to the, the, the note that I got from my friend from England, which prompted uh, this. He sent me this. I'm not sure where he found it, um, but he sent me a link to this website at uh, Brigham Young University. And this was a post that was made on August the 27th of 2013. So it's 10 years old. But apparently at, at BYU, at Brigham Young University, they have a journal of undergraduate research. And so they allow undergraduates to work with uh senior professors uh, and help them in various research projects. And so this was an article that was posted there 10 years ago uh, involving a fellow named Jason Olson, who worked with Dr. Donald Perry, who's the man who is a Mormon, uh, who is now one of the editors of the Biblia Hebraica Quinta, who is a gatekeeper for the Hebrew Bible that will be used as a basis of translation for the Christian scriptures, for Protestant Bibles. And so um, what I find interesting about this is this article reveals that Dr. Perry has a theological viewpoint. And it's interesting, you know, again, Brash is celebrating, oh, isn't it wonderful? It doesn't matter what your confession of faith is. You can, you can, uh, you can, without any presuppositions, look at the Hebrew text and make decisions. The problem is, I think, that uh, that no one is beyond. Uh, no one can escape their own presuppositions. And when you have a Mormon uh, editor of the Hebrew Bible 
there's a good chance that the, 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 the text is going to be open to adjustments that might fit with a Mormon perspective on uh, the Old Testament. So let's just read a little bit of this. I'm just going to read some of the through it briefly, and I'm going to I'm going to read the whole last couple of paragraphs. But let's just let's just see how this thing starts off. Um, the uh, writer here uh, writes: I had an incredible ORCA mentoring experience with Dr. Donald Perry. Our research research project was focused on the textual variations in the Dead Sea Scrolls that cause theological differences. Our main premise was to compare the Dead Sea Scrolls Hebrew biblical text with the traditional Masoretic biblical text. So this is apparently Jason Olson. I worked with Dr. Perry and we were looking at the Dead Sea Scrolls, comparing them to the traditional Masoretic text to see if we could find places where theological differences emerge. He continues, a lot of this is just explanatory of what the Dead Sea Scrolls are. He says, the Dead Sea Scrolls are a collection of ancient Jewish texts collected and written by the Essene sect of the Second Temple period. Uh, they were a separatist sect during this uh, time period, etc. Next paragraph, the texts are of great religious and historical significance as they include some of the only known surviving copies of biblical documents before 1000 B.C., and preserve impressive evidence of Second Temple Jewish beliefs. And so the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered in the 20th century. And before that, some of our oldest Hebrew manuscripts were only dated to AD 1000 because the exemplars in the Jewish tradition were typically destroyed uh, when they became damaged. Um, so he continues, and the Dead Sea Scrolls were discovered. And so Hebrew scholars were excited to see how uh, these um, manuscripts that they found matched up with the traditional Masoretic tradition. Let's look at the next paragraph. The biblical manuscripts from Qumran, which include at least fragments from every book of the Old Testament, except perhaps for the book of Esther, provide a much older cross-section of scriptural tradition than that available to scholars before. And here we have probably peeking through one of the canons of modern textual criticism, the older is better. And so um, there are many who want to alter the Hebrew text of the Old Testament based on the findings of the Dead Sea Scrolls. Um, it continues, the significance of the scrolls relates largely to the field of textual criticism, the technical study Dr. Perry and I conducted. Before the discovery of the Dead Sea Scrolls, the oldest Hebrew manuscripts of the Bible were the Masoretic texts dating to the ninth century CE, common era, the biblical manuscripts found among the Dead Sea Scrolls pushed that date back a whole millennium to the second century BCE, before the common era. And then he explains a little bit more about the Dead Sea Scrolls in this paragraph. About 35% of the Dead Sea Scroll biblical manuscripts belong to the Masoretic tradition, 5% to the Septuagint family, and 5% to the Samaritan, I guess that's Samaritan Pentateuch tradition, with the remainder unaligned. So this is an interesting point. When they looked at the Dead Sea Scrolls, 35% of them uh, were consistent with the Masoretic text. Uh, it's a testimony to 
the care with which the Masoretes had preserved. So even though the oldest manuscripts of the Masoretic text may be dated to uh, AD 1000, when they discovered the Dead Sea Scrolls, they found out that it was consistent with the traditional Jewish texts that dated to a couple hundred years before the time of, of Christ. But there were also among the Dead Sea Scrolls um, documents that supported uh, the Septuagint, the Greek translation, and the Samaritan Pentateuch. And, uh, and so uh, from this, some have wanted to alter or change the traditional Hebrew text. We can draw a parallel here to the 19th century and the, and the discoveries and publishing of Sinaiticus and Vaticanus in the New Testament. These must be better because they're older, but no one raises the question of why were these documents set aside? Why did they not continue to be copied? These were dead ends in the Hebrew tradition, the Dead Sea Scrolls, and they were dead ends, uh, uh, Sinaiticus and Vaticanus, in the early Christian tradition, and yet now modern scholars want to reclaim them and alter the traditional text based on these uh, discoveries. Now, let's get down to these last two paragraphs, because um, I think this is the last three paragraphs, because this is really uh, where the rubber is going to meet the road. And we begin to see here from this that Dr. Perry is not a disinterested, objective um, a viewer of the Hebrew Old Testament. So um, the student here writes, one impressive example of a textual variation that Dr. Perry and I found was Deuteronomy 32, verses 8 and 9. I will present the divergent text and offer an explanation below. The King James Masoretic version of Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9 reads, by the way, I might stop here. He says the King James, well, the Masoretic text was the traditional Hebrew text, and then it became uh, the traditional Protestant text, and all the Protestant vernacular translations of the Reformation, post-Reformation period up to the 19th century, 20th century, were from the Hebrew Masoretic text. That's not just in English, not just the King James Version. There were English translations before the King James Version that followed in this tradition using the Masoretic text. There are also translations in all the European languages, whether that's Spanish, French, Dutch, Hungarian, Italian, etc. Um, so uh, you might you might note that he probably that he probably mentions the King James version because in Mormonism uh, they see a special place for the King James version. In fact, they have a view of the King James version that's probably more akin to King James version onlyism that they see a kind of special inspiration for the King James. That's the only uh, translation, the only version of the, the, the English Bible that Mormons use. And they would, they would let that supersede any uh, textual evidence about the New Testament. They don't believe in the immediate inspiration of the, of the originals of the Hebrew and Greek. They look to this English translation. So, it's not surprising that he points out um, that this is the, the reading there. Uh, however, um, he's going to suggest that uh, there could be an adjustment made to this reading from the Masoretic text that would favor Mormon theology. And so let's see as he sets this up. So he mentions, first of all, uh, the, the reading of Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, 
from the Masoretic tradition. Verse 8, when the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the children of Israel. That's going to be the key term. The number of the children of Israel. For the Lord's portion is his people. Jacob is a lot of his inheritance. Now, he says the Dead Sea Scrolls version reads, and now here's from Deuteronomy 32, 8 and 9, as translated into English from the Dead Sea Scrolls, this find among the Dead Sea Scrolls. When the Most High divided to the nations their inheritance, when he separated the sons of Adam, he sets he set the bounds of the people according to the number of the sons of God. See, in the Masoretic tradition, it said, it said the number of the children of Israel. But now in this Dead Sea Scroll manuscript, it says the sons of God. For the Lord's portion is his people. Uh, Jacob is a lot of his inheritance. And so now here's the conclusion he draws from this. He says the incredible significance of this variation is that God can have sons in in pre-Christian era Jewish theology, exclamation mark. Jewish tradition maintained that there were 70 nations of the world. So therefore, post-Second Temple Judaism was able to make the connection, the Most High divided the nations according to the 70 sons of Israel. And even earlier Jewish theology, however, maintained that the 70 nations of the world were divided according to the 70 divine sons of the Most High God. This concept is fascinatingly preserved even in ancient Canaanite religion. A convincing conclusion to this argument is that Jewish scribes changed the scripture after the advent of Christianity to prevent the spread of the idea that God can have sons from public and or Jewish knowledge. So let's pause here. What, what, what's he trying to say? See, he likes the reading. As a Mormon, he likes the Dead Sea Scrolls reading. He likes the reading in Deuteronomy 32 and verse 8 that would read sons of God rather than children of Israel. Why? Because it fits better with his Mormon theology. Uh, and he's not, he's not latching on to this to prove that Jesus is the Son of God, as it says in Mark 1, 1, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the Son of God, uh, to have a Trinitarian view of Jesus as the Son of God, the eternal Son of God. No, this fits better. Uh, the Deuteronomy 32, 8, that would read sons of God, fits better with his Mormon theology, perhaps that God the Father is in Mormon theology, who has a body of flesh and, and bones, literally produced Jesus as his son, uh, and probably more importantly, that uh, that human beings are the sons of God who can be raised up and become as God is and populate their own worlds and so forth, according to the polytheistic Mormon theology. So the point is, here is a Mormon using the Dead Sea Scrolls to attempt to correct or alter the traditional Hebrew and Protestant texts of the Old Testament to make it fit better with Mormon theology. And it's interesting, he accuses the Masoretic text of corrupting what he believes was a purer uh, tradition. 
that somehow the Masoretic scribes changed the original sons of God to children of Israel in order to uh, block uh, this theology of sons of God. And if that seems far-fetched, I mean, you hear the same kind of argument uh, sometimes from Eastern Orthodox. Uh, the, 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 the Masoretic text is corrupted, was corrupted by Jews uh, to, 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 to stunt the, the Christian message. And that's why we need to look to the Septuagint and not the Masoretic text. And you even hear it today uh, with some Protestant scholars who, who, who would say the Masoretic text is corrupted. Therefore, we need to correct it with the Dead Sea Scrolls or the Septuagint or with the Syriac, etc. So I think we can see, and I appreciate my friend sending this to me. He saw it, that uh, when we have non-Christians who are placed as custodians and gatekeepers of the Christian scriptures, they will, in fact, alter attempt to alter those scriptures to reflect their own presuppositions. And this is really the key question that I want to raise in this episode. And that question is, who is the proper custodian of the Christian scriptures? John Owen said, the proper custodian of the Christian scriptures is uh, the church, our believers, are those who believe, have a like precious faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Those are the proper custodians. But we're being told in this new imagining of preservation that actually it doesn't matter who works on textual criticism. It doesn't matter who is the custodian of the text. So we can have, I guess, for the New Testament, we can have an institute in Munster that's somehow an, an, an academic German think tank. Maybe there are some people there who are part of the mainline Lutheran church in Germany. I don't know. I have no idea what the confessional commitment are of the people who edit the Novum Testamentum Graeche. Or we can have the Hebrew Old Testament and we can have a Mormon be in there editing it and it really doesn't matter. And what we're suggesting to the contrary is that it does matter uh, who the stewards are of the Christian scriptures. Um, the theology of those who handle the text uh, affects the way they look at the text. And in fact, we believe we don't need to do reconstruction work on the text. We have the traditional Hebrew text, the Masoretic text. We have the Texas Receptus. Let this serve as the standard. That's what John Owen said. Let this then serve as the standard. That doesn't mean there isn't a place for historical research for people who look at things like the Dead Sea Scrolls or who look at uh, ancient Syriac manuscripts or who study the Septuagint. There's a place for historical study of those things. Just don't use that study for speculations relating to reconstructing and supposedly correcting the Christian scriptures. We believe that the Bible has been preserved, not just the doctrinal content, but also the very words. And so we believe there is a safer way, and that is simply to stick to the text. Stick to the text that has been received and has been used by the people of God. Well, 
with that, I'm going to bring this episode to a conclusion. I hope that this will be helpful and thought-provoking and edifying for those who listen. And I'll look forward to speaking to you in the next edition of uh, uh, Word Magazine. Until we meet again, take care and may the Lord richly bless you.